Matt, and it is uh, good to be back at Knollwood. I feel like I've got um, a lot of connections with Knollwood because I met my wife when she was living right behind the old Knollwood on, when it was on Quebec Street, and that's where we met. And I remember speaking with uh, Fred Howard, the founder of this church, a number of years ago before he died, obviously, and, and he said he remembers after he became a believer that uh, he was attending, um, I think it was Hope Baptist, down at the bottom of um, Highbury and Hamilton Road, and he told me when he was 18, he remembers walking across the Meadow Lily Bridge, walking up the hill to start the fire at the building where Westminster Hope is, where Summerside now is, for the afternoon Sunday school. Uh, so we've had a connection with Knollwood for many years, and uh, I, have to, I have to tell you, when I walked into the auditorium today, I looked around and said, they moved a wall. They must have moved a wall. <laughs> it's like, it seems so much bigger in here since you've made these renovations, and it looks fantastic. And I want to just congratulate you for, for doing that, because what that communicates to people that are coming in is they wow, something's happening here. You know, things are different. Like, things look fresh. They, they, something, something's going on. And I know from just the interactions that I've had with you and hearing you worship that you really believe that God is, is working here, and we're excited about that. Now, I, I, do, I am an associate pastor at Summerside, and I was the senior pastor for a number of years, switched roles with my associate. <clears throat> and then a couple of years ago, I started working one day a week as the district shepherd for Feb Central, the Ontario region of our fellowship, which you are a part of. And so I do that once a week as the district shepherd for southwestern Ontario. So that covers uh, Niagara Falls to Collingwood down to Windsor. There are about 100 churches in that area. And I just help with pastors, work with pastors. Um, we're, we're running a revitalization network with some pastors um, and different things like that just to help service our churches. And so on behalf of Feb Central, I want to thank you for your contribution to supporting our fellowship here in Ontario, because there are a lot of neat things happening. There are churches that are being planted, there are churches that are being strengthened, and especially during these days of COVID, it's been really important that we recognize that we're not on our own. We're not just, you're, you aren't just an independent group of little people that are on your own. You're part of a larger fellowship of 270-some churches in Ontario and, and in the English part of Quebec that work together to accomplish the mission of the church. And your pastor probably appreciates it more than you as an individual do because as pastors, we uh, do a lot together. We encourage one another, and, uh, and it's an important aspect. Well, this morning, I suspect that most of you would agree that the virus, the coronavirus that we have been dealing with for the last two years, has made life very difficult for us. But the difficulties that you and I have been facing are nothing compared to what other believers have been facing around the world. Uh, a couple of weeks ago was the International Day of, to remember to pray for the persecuted church. And news is coming out from all over the world that persecuted Christians around the world are facing more difficulties than ever before. In India, 80% of Christians that tried to receive aid were at food distribution centers were dismissed because they were Christians. 
In other parts of Asia and Africa, there are numerous reports of Christians that are denied aid just because they're Christians, and they're just treated as second-class citizens. In China, they have, in some churches, they have installed facial recognition software so they could track who is attending church and who isn't, because the Chinese government likes to control what's going on. There has been an increase of 60% in the number of Christians killed for their faith. In Africa alone, that number is 4,761. 4,761 believers that were killed simply because they were following Jesus Christ. Open Doors Ministry that researches persecution has calculated more than 340 million Christians around the world are facing, suffering uh, what they consider to be high levels of persecution. It means they're losing their job, they're facing you know, pain, suffering in some way. Now, that number is, is hard for us to grasp, but if you think about it this way, that's more than the population of the whole United States. 340 million. Now, I'm saying all this for two reasons. One, we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world that are suffering. It, the Bible tells us to remember those who are in chains. So I would encourage you to be praying for the church around the world that, that do not have the privilege of doing what you're doing today, to come to church and sit down and listen to a service in a beautiful building. So we need to pray. The second thing is that if, unless God intervenes, it seems clear that Christians in North America are going to be facing persecution. Now, I'm, I'm, this isn't a prophetic statement. This is just the reality. When you look at what's happening in our world, when you look at how our world, and, and especially in the last two years, how quickly our society can change and the attitude towards certain things can change, it's very easy to see how the attitude towards Christians can change just like that. I mean, it's, I could see our government saying, you know what, these Christians, they're being, I mean, it, right now, the liberal government is talking about taking away the uh, charitable status of um, the uh, pregnancy centers. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Pregnancy centers. They're saying, they're saying these people are, are, are not helping women, so therefore we need to take away their charitable status. If that can happen, they're going to come after churches. They're going to say, you know what? Churches are wasting all of our tax money. Let's take away their charitable status. And, and it would be very easy for the government to just convince people we are haters. We're people that are standing for something that is totally against Canadian values, right? As our prime minister likes to say. The Canadian values do not accept this, our, our narrow-mindedness that we as Christians hold to. So you and I have to realize that there could come a day when you and I are going to face persecution, not just the kind of, you know, that your neighbor doesn't like you, but I mean, true persecution where you may lose your job, where you, you may lose your, what, you, what you own. We, I don't know how serious it can get, and it may not happen in my lifetime, but it could happen very quickly. Now, in light of what is happening in our world, we need to listen carefully to what Jesus says about persecution and how we should respond to it. And I hope you realize that he isn't going to tell us to build a bunker and find a place to hide. Okay, that, that's not what Jesus says when he talks about persecution. And he isn't going to tell us to follow our natural inclination to run and hide and just get out of the way. 
Instead, he tells his kingdom followers to do just the opposite. So this morning, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that for some of you said, yeah, I've read this one many times. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 16. Matthew 5 is in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is right after the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Beatitudes, those those statements where Jesus talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So he he makes all these statements about, about the people, the kind of people that are blessed, that are people that care, these are the things that characterize citizens of God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying, if you're a citizen of God's kingdom, this is what you're characterized by, and this is why you're blessed. And then after, after talking about that, in verse 11, after the Beatitudes, it's, it's almost like he, he restates the last Beatitude. And for many years, I, I assume that verses 11, verse 11 and 12 were a part of Restating the last beatitude, and then because of the way our, our Bibles tend to have headings, you'll notice that starting in verse 13, it, it talks about salt and light. So it's easy to think about verse 12, the persecution, as, okay, Jesus talked about that, now he's going to talk about salt and light. But then a couple years ago, I realized, no, this is, this is one sermon, and, and, and he is giving this in altogether. So if you look at verses 11 to 16 as one passage that ties together, you realize Jesus is telling us not only that we are blessed when facing persecution, but he also tells us how we're supposed to respond to it. So I want to look at these verses this morning and and to understand what Jesus is trying to, to, to explain to us. You see, the whole Sermon on the Mount is a presentation of Jesus talking about the kind of kingdom that he is introducing when he, came, when he came to the world. And in this kingdom, somebody has described it as an upside-down kingdom. Because what Jesus says is just the opposite of what the world, are, the world thinks about a kingdom and ruling and being in power. You see, the, 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 the world says it's the ones who are the powerful that are the ones that are blessed. And Jesus says, no, it's the weak. It's the ones who serve. It's the ones who are just the opposite of what the world says. As uh, John Stott calls it in his book, it's a Christian counterculture. So we're, we're living in this culture that we're in, and this culture is going in a direction that's just the opposite of what, of what God wants it to go, of the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus is saying, if you are a follower of mine, you're living in a culture that is the opposite of the way that the world is living. And what is it that distinguishes the culture that Jesus wants in his kingdom and the culture of this world? I think the best way to think about it is in that word values. Think about that, the values. What are the things that you value? The things that you consider to be important? Because in the kingdom of God, the values that Jesus is presenting are different than the values of the world. If we have submitted to Jesus as the king, then he challenges us to live out the values of this upside-down kingdom, and he wants us 
to understand that in spite of the fact that we could face persecution, he wants us to make an impact. And that's, that's why I'm calling this message making an impact, because that's the, that's the point of what he's saying here. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 5, and I would encourage you, if you have your Bible, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 16. Let me read it, and then we're going to see what Jesus is, is telling us. Now, if you, just a little note here, in verse 10, if we start at verse 10, he ends the Beatitudes with, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11 starts, blessed are you. It's like he's making it more personal. Now he's saying to the disciples, he's more general, now to the disciples, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Now, when you look at these verses here, you see that if, if we're looking at them as a connection between persecution and then salt and light, and light so what, how is it that they, they tie together? Well, when we think about persecution, our temptation is to respond with one of two ways. One option is to just sort of blend in with everybody so that we don't look any different, and everybody just assumes we're just like they are, so there's no reason to be persecuted, Right? So it, it, that's one option, is to blend in. The other option is to hide like hermits. Let's just, let's just get away from the world. Let's be, let's be what God wants us to be, but we don't want anybody to see anything because then they're going to think we're different, and then we could face opposition from that. Now, these verses make us realize that Jesus didn't consider each one of those options as legitimate. Instead, he says... If you choose to follow me, you will be persecuted. And why will they be persecuted? Well, verse 10, because of righteousness' sake. Verse 11, on account of me, it's it's all related to who Jesus is and your relationship with Jesus, which will put you in a position of being persecuted. And the assumption in each of these verses is that people that are outside the kingdom are going to see a difference with those who are inside the kingdom, those who are living the life of the kingdom, following Jesus as their king. And they won't like it, and they will persecute you. So in these six verses, Jesus is giving us three, cha- three challenges, not to run and hide, but instead to make an impact in our world. And he begins in verses 11 and 12 with the, this challenge, be distinct enough to be disturbing. Be distinct enough to be disturbing. Notice that Jesus assumes that if people are following him and living like him, they will stand out as distinct. People will recognize that the values that they're living by are different than the values of the world, and the world will not like it. It's it's amazing that when you think about even pregnancy centers that are doing 
good things. I mean, you look at the statistics of what they've done for young moms, and the government is not happy with that because they believe something that we don't like, because they're, they believe that, that you know, they're, they're, they're not supporting abortion like, like, like the government wants to support them, so they get upset. The government gets upset about that. So why should we expect people to persecute us? Well, because of righteousness, because of the name of Christ, because we're following Christ. You could say we're living a righteous life when we're imitating Christ, right? Because if, it's, if we're suffering on account of the name and we're suffering because of righteousness, righteousness is because we're living out according to the name of Jesus. We're living in submission to him as our king. We're living that out, and because of that, people are not going to like it. Because in some ways, when they see us choosing to submit to Christ, other people say, I don't like that because I don't want to submit to Christ. Isn't that really what, what really is, is bothering them? I don't want to do that, and I don't like them doing it because if I can get them to, to just live like me, then I can feel better about myself. So living a righteous life is, involves imitating Christ, and when we're telling people that following Jesus is the only right way to live, and he is Lord, and following his standard and teaching is, is the, the truth, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you don't follow him, you're going to come under his judgment. That's hate speech, right? You can't say that, because that is just wrong. That's unacceptable in our world. You can't say that in the school. You can't say that in government. You could not say that on the radio. You can, if you say it on Facebook, then you're being judgmental and you could, be, you could be shut out very easily. Now, some of you that may be listening to this think, can we really be that dogmatic? Is it really loving to tell people that what they believe is wrong? That's not loving. Let's be accepting. Let's be Canadian. Come on. Let's, let's just love everybody. Don't tell them they're wrong. Well, tell me something. Do you think it would be more loving for them to go through life not realizing that they're wrong? And the only time they find out they're wrong is when they stand be before Jesus as their judge? Do you think that would be a little more loving? That wouldn't be very loving. So we need to be willing to tell people, when appropriate, that they're wrong. And that Jesus is the only way. And that he is the only way that they can have life. And as a result, we can face persecution. Now, let's be clear that if we are being persecuted, it should be because of Jesus. Um, listen to Peter's words, 1 Peter 4, 14 to 16, and Peter is writing to a church that is facing persecution. Peter says, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So make sure that you're suffering because of the name of Christ, not because you're obnoxious, not because you're just annoying, not because you're just irritating people or you're arrogant 
and you're trying to tell everybody how bad they are and how good you are. No, do, if you're going to suffer, make sure it's because of the name of Jesus, because you're glorifying him, because you're living for him, and your focus is on him and not on yourself and how great you are. So Peter makes that clear. Keep, keep that in mind. And what's the proper response to persecution? Poor me, I have it so bad because the way people are treating me, and I'm so, it's so difficult. No, that's not what Peter says. Peter says, you're blessed. You're, you're blessed because you, you bear that name. Praise God that you bear that name. Rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. Don't, don't get, bad. Don't get you know, sad about it. Say, hey, I'm, if it's for the name, for the sake of Christ, I'm blessed. And in the early days of the church, the disciples, uh, the, the, this statement just blows my mind every time I think of it. You know, remember the disciples in the early days after Jesus rose from the dead and the day of Pentecost came and they're, they're preaching the gospel and, the, and the, the authorities tell them to stop preaching or you're going to go to prison. They say, we have to keep preaching. So they keep preaching and they get beaten. They get thrown into prison, even though they could have just backed off, but they didn't. They, they were thrown into prison and we read in Acts 5.41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. It's like, we honored Jesus and we suffered for it. Praise God. Praise God that, that his name was honored. And it doesn't matter what happens to us. Because we're more concerned about what happens to Jesus. So if you don't like the thought of persecution, there is a way to avoid it. Simply go undercover. Pretend you're not a Christian. That is an option. It really is. Now, the downside of this option, I just need to warn you, is that you will never know if you are going to face the reward that Jesus promises because you will never really know if you're following him, if you're just pretending you're not. And I would hate for that to happen to you because you... If we, if we want to have the confidence of knowing that we are following Christ, if we, like even the, the things we've been singing about in the song, we're, he's holding on to us. But if, but if we're running away, so maybe we haven't let him hold on to us in the first place. Let's make sure that we are holding fast to the truth, because, and the truth is that he's holding on to us. And if you're trying to run away from Jesus, then maybe you're not honoring his name. And I'm not saying that to scare you or threaten you. I just need, you need to be honest. You need to do some honest introspection to say, am I following Christ? Am I living out the values of the kingdom of God? Or am I pretending and hoping that nobody knows and that I can hide in my little corner so that I can protect my life and hold on to my life? Didn't Jesus say, if you lose your life, you'll find it? We need to be honest about these things. And, I'm, and I, I'm saying that as a warning that, that if for some reason in the next five years persecution comes seriously, are you going to be ready for it? How will you respond? How many people would be here on Sunday if, if they knew that coming to church they could get arrested? Now, maybe you'll be out in some field somewhere, high, you know, having a service there, and that may be an option. But, but let's be honest about what we, how we think about life because we're so comfortable in North America, in spite of everything that's been going on the last couple of years. You know, Jesus warns his disciples in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that's how their ancestors treated the false 
prophets. They spoke well of them. They, were, they liked them. They liked hearing from them. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Boy, I wish that verse wasn't in the Bible. <laughs> like, if you want to live a godly life and do what God wants you to do, you're going to face persecution. People won't like it. There will be people around you that won't like it. So isn't Paul saying the same thing that Jesus is saying, that the point that we're seeing in Matthew 5? Be distinct enough to be disturbing. If you're not being distinct enough, if you're not disturbing anybody with your life, then maybe you need to say, am I being distinct enough or am I just trying to look like, make, I don't want anybody to think I'm different. No, I'll just be like the rest of the world. You know, put on a smiley face and no, let's, let's, uh, let's live out the values of God's kingdom. Let's live such radical lives that people say, what's wrong with that person? Like, why are they doing that? Like, why do they, why do they get up and go to church every single Sunday? It's like, come on now. That's a little extreme, isn't it? Why do they sacrifice money to, to help do things at church, like to, to, to serve God and to send missionaries out? Like, that's extreme, yeah, there's so many better things you can do with your money. You see, if we're living a godly life and people are mistreating us, we can rejoice because it demonstrates we're doing what our king has asked us to do. So the first way in which Jesus tells us to make an impact is to be distinct enough to be disturbing. Now, let's move on to verse 13. Verse 13 is we read about the salt of the earth. And this is a passage that many Christians are familiar with. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled, trampled under feet. What he's saying here is to be involved enough to influence. Be involved enough to influence. Because Notice that he doesn't say you need to become salt. No, he doesn't say that. He says you are salt. You are the, if you are a kingdom citizen, you are the salt of the earth. The question is, are you, are you influencing? And how do you influence? Well, the salt has got to come in contact with whatever it's influencing. So he says, you need to be, be involved enough to make, to, to make a difference, to influence. It's interesting that salt uh, is used in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says, let your conversation be seasoned with salt. A couple years ago, uh, our intern that it was at our church, was a bit of a, a chef, and he told me, he says, do you realize that salt, you know, when you put salt on food, you don't put it on to taste the salt. He says, what happens is when you put salt, that you put salt on food, it takes away the bitterness of the food so that it enhances the flavor of whatever's there. That's an interesting concept in light of the conversation, right? Let your conversation be seasoned with salt. Taking away the bitterness of a conversation so that, that the, the love and the truth can, can be displayed clearly. So uh, seasoning is one of the common uses of salt throughout the world, right? To, to use it in food to enhance the flavor. But another common use for salt around the world is to preserve. If you've ever been to um, a fishing museum... You know, you know that they're going to tell you how they would salt their fish and how they'd preserve the fish before they, had, before they had refrigeration, and they would salt fish, and they still do it all over the world, salt cod and delicious stuff. And they would use salt to stop something from 
from going bad, or people would put salt on a wound to keep it from getting infected. And some of you are cringing just at the thought of that. Now, Jesus warns about salt, and we don't know, you know, he doesn't tell us exactly how he's using it. It could be he's using it with these different implications, but Jesus warns about salt losing its saltiness, losing its influence, losing its impact. Now, some of you that have taken science will say, uh, Mark, uh, salt is a very stable compound. Technically, salt does not become unsalty. And you know that if you have a, you know, if you're looking through your cupboard and you find, out, find a salt shaker that was sitting in the back of your cupboard for the last 10 years, you take it out, the salt is still, still there. It's probably clumped up a bit. But if you, you know, get it, break it up again, you can still use it and it's still salty. So there's, there's, there's truth that salt doesn't become unsalty. And it could be that Jesus is saying there's no such thing as unsalty salt, right? You're either, if you are salt, you're, you're going to be you're going to have flavor. And if you don't, then you're not salt, right? It's, it's not there. But there's another way of looking at this. And it, because back in those days, their salt was not as purified as our salt. You know, our salt is this bright white stuff and actually table salt has sugar in it if you look at the ingredients, but unless you use sea salt. But, but if you think about the salt back in those days, think about it more like the bag of salt that you get to throw on, your, on the ice on your sidewalk. You know, when you look, when you open that bag of salt, it's not white like the table salt, right? Why? Well, because there's dirt, you know, there's impurities mixed in with it, and we don't care because it's cheap and it, we, we throw it out there. Well, back in those days, they would have salt that had impurities in it, and sometimes the salt, if you had salt sitting on the cupboard and it was humid and you didn't have, you know, a refrigeration and air conditioning, the salt could leach out, leaving behind a powder, which was good for nothing, and that's why, that, that could be another reason why Jesus says it's good for nothing to be thrown out and walked on in the street, you know, thrown out with the rest of the stuff, with the rest of the dust from the house. But in any case, regardless of which way this, this goes here, is that Jesus is expecting his followers to have an influence on this world, to make an impact on this world. And when you look through history, you see amazing ways in which Christians have influenced our world. Now, you see this more in the U.S. than you see here when you look at the names of hospitals. But sometimes it shows up on the news. You know, it's like, for some of us, like, Baptist Hospital? Like, where did that come from? It's like a Baptist Hospital of Louisiana? Or, you know, there are all kinds of Baptist hospitals and Presbyterian hospitals and Methodist hospitals down in the States. Because there were Christians that started hospitals because there was a need to care for the, the sick and the dying. And so they started these hospitals and they had, you know, they became known by the denomination that started them. But even, even here in, in London, we know that there's the Salvation Army, uh, Mission Services, the YMCA. Most people, I bet you the average person in London doesn't have a clue that it was started as a Christian organization. Um, you know, Youth for Christ. These are all organizations that were started to, to somehow make a difference in the, in the society and influence for good. And that's a good thing. A Christian should be doing that. Uh, in addition to helping the needy, there's, there's political influence that we can have. 
And there are a lot of great examples in history of Christians that were in politics that influenced the direction of society. And probably one of the most powerful image, uh, names is William Wilberforce. You know, he's the one in England, the, the parliamentarian who fought against slavery. And as a result of his, as a Christian, his efforts, he turned around the whole problem of slavery in the, English, in the British Empire. So that's a way of influencing. But you and I can be involved in our neighborhoods, in our communities, on your street, to promote love and justice. We need to do that. You know, in the past year or so, many people have withdrawn out of fear. It's like, oh, shut our door. Let's not talk to anybody because we don't want to get sick. And we need to, what a great opportunity we have of stepping out and getting involved in our world. To say, you know what, I want to I make a difference in my world. I want to influence my world. I want to do something that demonstrates that the kingdom of God is present because I am here as a representative of my king and I am going to seek to make a difference, to have an influence, to be an influence in my society because I am salt and God calls me to do that. So Jesus expects his disciples to be distinct enough to be disturbing and to be involved enough to influence. And now look at the third one, verses 14 to 16. Here's where he talks about the light. And basically, he's telling us to be bright enough to be seen. To be bright enough to be seen. You know, there are at least 40 different verses in the Bible that use the image of light to refer to the life of God in us. So it isn't surprising that Jesus would come and declare, I am the light of the world. And Paul then takes that image. You know, Jesus is the light of the world. When we become followers of his, when, we, when Christ lives in us, we then have the light of the world in us, and we display the light to the world. The world sees Jesus in us. Ephesians 5.8, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Let the light be displayed. Now, if you aren't sure what that means, he continues on in that passage and explains what it means to be children of light. He talks about the fruit of light consisting of goodness, righteousness, and truth, doing what pleases the Lord, living in such a way that the life that is in us is being lived out in our everyday life in a number of different ways. And in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, we read, For God who said... Let light shine out of darkness. Going back to creation, remember when God created the world? Let the light shine, and it shone. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The light that God has given to us in his life is in us, and he wants that life to be shining through your life through the things you do, through the things you say, so that the world can see Jesus as the light of the world. And if we're letting the light of Jesus shine, what will people actually see? Verse 16, Matthew 5, they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, some people want to say that, well, when Jesus talks about good deeds, he's talking about actions, and I'm just trying to be a silent witness. You know, there are times to, that you should be a silent witness. Um, there, depending on your job, there are probably things that you 
shouldn't be dealing with in your job. You know, if you're, you're a sales clerk, don't be trying to, you know, give the four spiritual laws to everybody who comes through the checkout. That's not, that's not the right time to do that. So there is a time to be a silent witness. But this is not implying that, that, you should, that being a silent witness is good enough. If we look at the example of Jesus... You know, it's, it's true that our actions speak louder than our words at times. And if your actions are inconsistent with your words, then your words aren't going to mean much. But if you read how Jesus thought about his good deeds, it's interesting in Matthew chapter 11. Um, remember when John the Baptist was in prison and John the Baptist was, was having some questions and he, he told his disciples, says, go to Jesus and ask them, are you the one that we should be seeking or is there another one coming? Listen to how Jesus responds to that question of, of what he's doing. In Matthew 11, verses 4 and 5, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. For Jesus, the evidence of his kingdom, the evidence of, of his good works are the things that he did and the things that he said, the good news that he preached. They're both connected. Don't think that you can just do good deeds and hope that people will see that. I wonder how many people are going to wake up after death and say, my, my neighbor was such a nice person. I wonder why. Wouldn't that be sad? We need to speak as well as act. So our good deeds are anything that we do that reflects the life of God in us, and it includes speaking the truth, helping people understand that God has sent his son Jesus so that we could have life through him. Now, what's the warning here? The warning is don't hide your light. Let it shine. Don't hide it. Just like salt is useless if it doesn't have, if it's, if it's not making a connection and it's not influencing, just like that is useless, light is useless if it is hidden and can't be seen. Jesus says, the, you, don't take a, you don't take a light and cover it with a bushel or a bowl. No, that's, light, light is intended to, to shine. So, and he uses two illustrations. He mentions the city on a hill. Uh, a couple of years ago, Faith and I went to, had the privilege of visiting her brother in Vancouver, and they got us connected with this little cottage on the Sunshine Coast. I didn't even know they had a Sunshine Coast. But you go north of, north of Vancouver, you cross the ferry, and the beautiful coastline. And on that coast, you look across, and there's Vancouver Island. You know, a massive island. And during the daytime, all you see are these mountains, right? It just looks like a bunch of mountains, and you wouldn't know it's an island because you don't see the ends of it. But it just looks like a bunch of mountains. But at nighttime... When it starts getting dark, all of a sudden, oh, there's Nanaimo. Because 30 kilometers away, the lights start coming on, and you see it. You can't hide the city. It's there because the lights, during the day, you don't notice it at my, as much. But in the darkness, the light shines, and you see it. Even back in Jesus' day, when they didn't have electricity at nighttime, you know, they would start up their fires outside, or they'd light their oil lamps, and they would... The, the lights would come on, and you could see a city. The cities were usually on, a, on a, a higher place, and you could see a city in a distance because the lights were shining. 
And he also used the illustration of a lamp on a stand. Back in those days, the houses were fairly simple, you know, one or two room houses. And at nighttime, they would light their oil lamps and they would take their oil lamp and they would stick it under the couch, right? No. You'd put it in the high, a high spot so that it would give light to the whole house. So that the light would be displayed as best as it could, influencing what's happening. Now, I don't think I need to convince any of you that you look at our world and our world is getting darker. Right? Spiritually speaking, definitely our, our world is getting darker. There's no question. No question about that. But what does Jesus say? It's getting darker out. Better hide your light. Is that what he says? Better, better get, it, get it away from the darkness. No, do you, do you realize the quickest way of eliminating darkness is what? Turn on the light. Right? Darkness has no power. Darkness flees in the face of light. It's not like, oh, this room is, this, this, the, the power of darkness is so great in this room, we need a brighter light. Well, no, the light, the, the light isn't determined by how strong the darkness is. No, how big the room is or something like that, right? So darkness doesn't have any power. The light shines and it can't be ignored once it's on. When the light is on, the darkness goes away and it lights up everything. You see, light is different from darkness in that it can't be ignored. People see it. They have to acknowledge that it's there. And they're confronted, hopefully, with the, with the option, am I going to choose to follow the light, or am I going to stay in the darkness? Am I going to turn away from, to the darkness? So when you think about your life, do you feel like you're the only Christian at work? that bothers you sometimes, let it shine. Let the people around you see something different. Let them know that you are different, that you are following a kingdom that's totally different than the kingdom of this world. And you don't care if they don't like you. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be annoying. Be what God wants you to be. Demonstrate with your good light, with your good works, with your good deeds, with your righteous acts, with the words that you speak, with the truth that you communicate. Letting people know that, hey, man, you're just so thankful for what God did for you this last week. You know, or say, yeah, hey, you know, can I pray for you? I'm sorry to hear what's happening in your life. Like, let them realize that this is a normal part of your life so that they see the good deeds. You feel like your neighbors are think that you're strange because you go to church on Sunday? Let it shine. Don't be worried about what they think. When you get together with your extended family and you feel like, man, half my family are just unbelievers and they're such, such just annoying people and so difficult. They don't care about God and they mock him and everything. It's like, let it shine. Don't, don't let that bother you. Just think about what God wants you to do in that situation. Love them the way that Christ loved you. Let it shine. There may come a day when your neighbors or your coworkers or your family members will recognize that their life is so dark and they'll say, where am I going to find some light? And they're going to be able to turn to you because they're seeing the light in you. Let it shine. Let it shine. Don't cover it up. So the next time you feel like griping and complaining about how bad our world is, Let's be distinct enough to be disturbing. Let's be involved enough to influence. Let's be bright enough to be seen. 
You know, this past year, the world has been focused on a virus that has disrupted the world. You realize God hasn't been disrupted? He's still at work, and He expects us to not stop being distinct, to not stop being involved, to not stop shining brightly. He's called us to do that because He's still at work. You know, there was another pandemic back in 1968. Some of you may, may, rem- may remember it. I was only 10 years old, so I, it wasn't something that stood out in my memory, and it obviously didn't affect our family, but it was the Hong Kong flu. Across our world, 4 million people died of the Hong Kong flu. 1968 was also a horrible year in the United States. Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, it was the same year that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Uh, during that time, the U.S. was in the Vietnam War, which was just a horrible, horrible war and caused unbelievable problems. And it was the same year that the My Lai Massacre took place. Some of the soldiers massacred a bunch of Vietnamese. Just a, a horrible situation. There were uh, riots across the country, you know, on all the campuses. People were, students were rioting. It was a really difficult time. But God was at work. God was at work in a place that people least expected it. Because it was in the 60s when we had the hippies. Those hippies. Some of you were one of those, right? My prayer partner was one of them. He was, he was a hippie from the, down in the States. And he, God got a hold of his life. Do you realize that historians look back at that time in the late 60s, early 70s? 20 to 30 million people came to faith in Christ during that time when it was so dark, it was so difficult, it was so bad. God was at work. Do you believe God is at work now? He is. I, I don't know how. I'm hoping for a revival. I'm, and and in, his, in history, there have often been revivals that come after difficult times like pandemics. But what are you going to do about it? What, are you, what part are you going to play in there? Are you going to be letting your light shine? Are you going to be influencing? Are you going to get involved in your world? Or are you going to sit back and hide because you're scared of what people are going to think? You're afraid of being persecuted. No, we might get persecuted. Let's do it together. <laughs> let's, let's do what God has called us to do. Could we be at a point where God is getting ready to do something in our generation? I don't know what he has planned, but he's calling us to be people that are involved. People that are influencing. People that are shining brightly so that the world can see who Jesus is. May God help us to not use COVID as an excuse to hide but to seek to be such distinctive people that we're making a difference in our world. And even if we're persecuted, it doesn't matter. We're going to do it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus into this dark world. He lived such a distinct life that it was disturbing. But he was so involved that he influenced the people around him He was such a bright light that people saw the light in the darkness. And as a result, we are here today 
experiencing his life. I pray for Nolwood. Send us out with a renewed desire to follow Christ by being distinct, by being involved, by being shining brightly. And if we're persecuted, help us to counter the privilege because we serve the true and the living God and we serve his son Jesus who gave his life so that we could have life. Thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.